You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. So today she's going to be talking to us about this really amazing book. And if you haven't had a chance to look at it, I, I encourage you to take a look. Um, as I told her, I started with the methodological appendix uh, because the way she did the work is just stunning. Surveys, um, interviews, focus groups. Um, and, and really one of the things I like about it so much is how she really explains the way she worked with our Russian colleagues uh, to get all this done. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a huge enterprise that she undertook here. Um, and of course, the, the analysis is fantastic too, in terms of looking at how uh, everything evolved, which looked to me to be kind of a nightmare to figure all that out, you know, to, which, which accounts to trust and that sort of thing. And then to use the uh, data that she had to figure out uh, the reasons how people reacted to the anger that they felt about what happened. Um, but I'll let her tell us more about it. So please join me in welcoming her. Kathy, I almost thought you, you should do it. <laughs> that was great. Thank you so much for the introduction. And, and uh, Jennifer, thank you for um, uh, having me. Uh, everyone, thank you for having me. Um, this is a story of a violent episode. Um, it completely devastated families and their community. Um, we're looking here at school number one in the town of Beslan in southern Russia. And it was the first day of school, which is a big celebration in Russia. So it wasn't just the usual school age population that was present. It was parents and grandparents and, and other visitors, a lot of preschoolers and babies. And everyone gathered outside for the celebration. And then gunfire and chaos and confusion as it became clear that terrorists had taken over the school. And about 1,200 people were herded into the school for a nightmarish 53 hours. They were denied food and water. They were forced to drink urine. They were often told to soil themselves where they sat. They were threatened with shooting if they talked or cried. The most able-bodied men were summarily executed at the very beginning of the ordeal. And the horror ended with over 330 people killed, meaning that one in every 100 people in the town was dead, half of them children. And many others were maimed for life. And the whole town, if not Republic, was traumatized. And the question driving the book is, what do people do in the aftermath of violence and why? Um, so that's sort of the big generalizable research question. But it's also the specific question in this specific case, uh, the question that everyone asked uh, the people of Beslan after such devastation, what would they do? And if you go back to newspapers from 2004, when this happened, and even in the years afterwards, everyone had the same answer. Violence begets more violence. Um, so here's just a, a, a smattering of quotes from the time. And we'll start with um, President Vladimir Putin. He said, those who have sent bandits to commit this heinous crime have aimed at setting our peoples against one another, intimidating citizens of Russia and unleashing a bloody feud in the North Caucasus. Former president uh, of Ingushetia, uh, Ruslan Aushev, said something similar. The Caucasus is on the threshold of a new ethnic war. The war in Chechnya might look like nothing in comparison with this possible war. Then we've got Ruslan Haspulatov, uh, former, speaker of, um, sorry, there we go. Uh, former speaker of the Russian parliament, 
And he said one push, like a new Ossetian English war, and the entire Caucasus would be engulfed in one bloody, senseless, and hopeless melee that Russia will not have enough troops to contain. Let's give you a local local flavor too, local policeman. He says, um, it would take just one match and this whole place would go up in flames. No one is going to forgive, that's certain. This is the Caucasus, that doesn't happen. And even a year later, uh, Dr. Leonid Rochal, noted pediatrician who was called on by the terrorists to come to the school, he said, uh, what did Chechen rebel leader Shamil Tsayev want to do? He wanted Ossetians to take spades and machine guns and move on to Ingushetia. If someone's child is taken hostage, he may do this. And then if we go to the victims themselves, the newspapers have quote after quote of people saying it's time to fight, it's time to take up arms. So in the focus groups that Kathy mentioned um, and informed part of the book, we have victims saying the same. So here's one exchange among men. So Vitali starts us off. He says, yes, some people were thinking about taking revenge. Boris, in the beginning, there was such an opinion. Vitali, yes, it was a stressful situation. Tamerlan, people had this idea. You could even say the overwhelming majority of people to tell the truth, if I had seen a full bus with English people right after the events and there had been children there, I would have shot all of them, all of them. Totraz, you are overreacting. Kazbek, I would have shot everybody there. Totraz, I don't think you would have shot children. Alec, I can easily believe them. Kazbek, I would have shot because I saw in the hall, in the morgue. And with apologies for the disturbing image, um, here is what Kazbek is talking about. Um, the makeshift morgue where people searched for their dead children and other relatives, and they saw many bodies destroyed beyond recognition. And then the town went from funeral to funeral, even needing to dig a new cemetery and travel to other towns because they ran out of coffins. And the wall of the school became uh, a shrine of sorts with photos and people were talking about getting even and settling scores, eye for an eye, blood for blood, vengeance. Um, and the female victims reported the same. So uh, Angela says, at that time, it was true that there were attempts at revenge. These were men, Vera says, these were men who buried their children. I think not only an Ossetian, but a Russian would also avenge his child. And then uh, when people were asked years later, uh, in 2008, almost four years later, were they still thinking about revenge? Boris, no one will tell you openly about it. Probably they do. Alik, no person will say that it's unnecessary, that it's senseless. If a person slapped you in the face once and you didn't respond, the second time he will cut off your finger and the third time your hand. And then in general, and then Kazbek jumps in and says, in the Bible, it's one way, but in real life, it's another. Share your bread with your enemy. I will share dynamite with him. And yet, so after all this gruesome prelude, very little retaliatory violence actually occurred after the massacre at the school. Um, and it's tempting to ask, why did so many people get it wrong? Uh, what did they miss? Why did they misunderstand the situation? And in some ways, I think uh, we social scientists are trained to think this way. We see an unexpected outcome and we see it as kind of a gotcha moment, right? Like, aha, everyone who looked at this situation, they were all wrong and I'm gonna be the one to swoop in and I'm gonna tell you why they should not have expected retaliatory violence. But if we listen to the victims in their survey responses and in their focus groups discussions, and if we take their voices seriously as evidence, the expectations of retaliatory violence had great foundation. This situation could have gotten out of hand. Um, you know, it could have been a, a spiral of retaliatory ethnic violence, possibly all out war in the North Caucasus, especially because the region has longstanding traditions of vendetta and blood feud. So Beslan is what, um, what Mahoney and Garrett's call a negative case. 
It's a situation where retaliatory ethnic violence realistically could have occurred, but did not. Um, maybe you can kind of think of it as a near miss. And that makes the nonviolence after the hostage taking in Beslan important for understanding ethnic violence. Um, so otherwise we would just be studying or relying on cases where violence is present and we would be biasing our understanding. And so the question is, if retaliatory violence were to materialize, who would support it? What factors make a victim of violence ready for deadly vengeance, ready to murder in response? Or you might think of it as recruitable. Um, if provocative elites or what they call violent entrepreneurs tried to mobilize or tried to manipulate the situation to provoke uh, violence. And to contextualize the question in Islam, um, the hostages were predominantly ethnic Ossetians and Orthodox Christians. The terrorists were mostly English and Chechen, although other ethnicities were present as well, um, and they were mostly Muslim. The violence at the school was embedded in a larger violent ethnic historical context. So North Ossetia, for those of you who would like to see the geography a little bit, it's in Southern Russia, close to Chechnya, where there were two recent wars and only English Ossetias in between. And there were decades of bloody territorial disputes between English and Ossetians. In Beslan, the militants demanded full Russian troop withdrawal from Chechnya and uh, recognition of formal independence for Chechnya. And so after the atrocities at Beslan School Number 1, it was easy to apply a kind of us versus them narrative to see the events through an ethnic lens. Something like English Chechens came to our Republic and killed our Ossetian babies, right? I mean, that would be like a narrative that's out there. Um, on the other hand, if everyone was expecting retaliatory violence, no one was expecting what actually happened. The most sustained political activism in modern Russian history. Beslan victims held rallies, set up websites and organizations, attended meetings, they signed petitions, met with local and national officials, they blockaded a highway, they staged courtroom sin, and on hunger strikes, and they very aggressively made demands and challenged authorities. So here you're looking at victims approaching North Ossetian Interior Minister Kazbek Zantiev in the week after the hostage taking, and they're demanding with the North Ossetian president at the time, Alexander Tazokov. And shortly after this, they started calling for resignation of both men. Um, and a few months later, in December 2004, more than 100 people rallied at the school, uh, at the wreckage, and they were holding portraits of their children and had posters saying, we're waiting for a meeting with President Putin. Our children had the right to life. Who will answer for our children? Those kinds of things. A few months after that, uh, March 2005, more than a thousand rallied in Kadakavkaz, the capital of North Ossetia, and the signs said things like, terrorists in power are more frightening than Al-Qaeda. And imagine terrorists kill us and the authorities humiliate us. And the victims, um, they became professionalized very quickly. They learned how to give press briefings and put out statements and, and keep attention focused on their cause. And then they became extraordinarily courageous activists. So as you already saw in the previous slides, they directly challenged authority and they got even more brazen as time wore on. So this photo shows one of the most brazen acts. They held a sign saying Korsukina, of course, with an arrow pointing to the destroyed school. And this is risky 
So Ella Kaiva, the activist in the striped coat, she faced court charges for, and this one's, I, I look for humor wherever I can find it in these very depressing topics, but the court charge was improper use of a road sign. So, um, and you know, and like other supposed offenses, right? I mean, like, you know, these things are obviously manufactured, um, but they, uh, you know, they take time and emotional energy, so it doesn't really matter if they're like, Humor. They're not humorous to her, right? Um, and officials generally harass and try to intimidate the victims and intimidate their attorney and intimidate journalists. Um, so here we see a table with the percentage of Beslan victims who participated in each of a possible 31 concrete activities that occurred after the hostage taking. And it's listed in declining order of participation rate. And I'll explain the methodology a bit more in a second, but I just wanted to direct your attention to a few things. Of these activities, an extraordinary number, 19 of them, had participation levels of 5% or higher of the 1,098 people that we surveyed, the victims that we surveyed. Seven of them had participation levels of 10% or higher. One in three victims attended some part of the trial against accused hostage or Pasha Kulayev. One in five victims met with North Ossetian President Taimuraz um, uh, Mamsurov. One in five wrote to a newspaper, called a news show, or spoke to a reporter. And one in six attended a meeting with Russian Deputy Prosecutor General Nikolai Shepel. And even as we go down the list to some activities with lower participation rates, we're still talking about very impressive numbers of people because the effort involved was pretty high. So for example, we have lots of people traveling to the city of Rostov-on-Don to meet with Putin's special envoy. This is a staggering amount of participation. So altogether, 50% of the Beslan victims acted politically on at least one occasion, and 7% participated in more than 10 activities and would, by most definitions, be labeled political activists. And the activism would be impressive in most contexts. Um, we know from all the literature on collective action that political participation is usually very low, right? This is the kind of thing that in political science, we, we teach our graduate students, you know, right from the start that participation involves high, concentrated and certain costs. And the benefits are usually low and dispersed and uncertain. Um, and in Beslan, the victims had that same type of cost benefit calculation. They had few resources like money, uh, little access to policymakers, their time was severely constrained by injuries or caring for injured loved ones, um, not to mention post-traumatic stress. And many of the victims were women who were trying to assert their interest in a paternalistic region and country. And many of the grievances amounted to accusations against powerful Russian leaders, including Putin, where they were basically saying, you killed our children. Um, so it's astonishing that one in two people took some form of political action and one in 14 became full-fledged activists. Um, and so the question here is, what factors encourage this activism? What factors make someone more likely to respond to violence by participating in politics? And let's contextualize this question a bit as well. Um, I just described why victims might want to retaliate violently against their ethnic adversaries. So why have Islam victims been so focused on the North Ossetian and Russian governments? And the answer is that the victims believe that their loved ones, most of them, uh, are dead, not only because of the terrorists, but because of the government, because of government corruption, government incompetence, government insensitivity, and outright cruelty. Um, so sure, the terrorists, English, Chechen, other terrorists, the, that's who took them hostage. But the counterterrorism operation was not a hostage rescue operation. 
it was an operation to annihilate the bad guys at all costs, despite the probability of killing innocent people. So the situation ended with the gymnasium roof uh, igniting and collapsing, and most of the deaths occurred after. So the victims believe that the government troops were somehow responsible for the explosions that caused the roof fire, and they believe that the government used flamethrowers and machine guns and grenade launchers and tanks while the hostages were still alive inside the building and could have been saved. Um, there was inadequate firefighting equipment, inadequate water, uh, not enough ambulances, even though the authorities had over two days to prepare. And there was absolute chaos at the scene with local men blending in with military and special forces, no clear lines of authority, um, no accountability. Um, so just to give you an idea of what that looked like, um, here are some Ossetian civilians mixed in with soldiers during the siege. Um, and then here they are again um, after the school roof caved in and the school was still burning and the civilians are hoping to find survivors. Um, and here, um, civilians and soldiers are definitely mixed together, right? They're, they're carrying an injured student. And there are mixed reports about whether the presence of civilians, many of them armed, um, exacerbated the crisis. But the civilians may at least have saved some lives. Um, and even if they were unhelpful, like let's just go there, that, that maybe they were unhelpful in some way, that's still on the authorities who were disorganized and uncoordinated. Or there's even a more sinister interpretation. Maybe the authorities were actually hoping to have the school burn as part of an anticipated cover-up. Um, so if all the evidence of government flamethrowers and other bungling is burned to a crisp, then the government can avoid accountability. So if this is what the gym looks like, the school gym, right after September 2004, forensics are going to be pretty difficult. The gym is empty, no cordoning off, not sealed for forensic experts. Um, the scene was contaminated from the outset. And in the most callous disregard for victims, body parts were scooped up with the rubble and taken to the local dump. Um, and there are even worse stories than that. Um, and there are so many other complaints of the victims that I'll just mention just a few more here. So um, victims blame the government for enabling the hostage taking in the first place, as there were many warning signs and even direct warning. They blame the government for not taking care of them. The, the federal and regional governments each gave a meager $3,500 to the families of the deceased. And then they gave them a little bit more for funeral expenses. And one reporter captured a victim and she's crying in her yard and she's trying to stretch her arms around the four coffins that are um, containing her son and her daughter and her two grandchildren. And she's shouting sarcastically, Putin gave me money, Putin gave me money, I shall buy myself new children. Um, and the real kicker is that the victims don't even believe that the authorities got all the bad guys. So to this day, the authorities insist that there were only 32 terrorists. Why 32? because they had 31 dead terrorist bodies and one captured surviving terrorists whom they tried, convicted, and incarcerated. If they admitted that there were more than 32, as almost every victim and reporter and anyone familiar with the case believed that how could it be just 32 with over 1,200 hostages, that, you know, with over two days not sleeping, it just doesn't really add up. The, the building is pretty big. Um, but so if they admit that there's more than 32, the authorities have to admit that they killed victims in the name of yet another failed counter-terrorist operation. They are not the powerful, competent fighting force that they claimed to be. So the victims wanted the truth. 
They wanted an independent, objective investigation. They wanted accountability, and, you know, acknowledgement of government actions, acknowledgement of government mistakes. And there was also an element of never again. Um, there was a sense in Beslan and perhaps in all of Russia that the government's counterterrorism operations are basically a death sentence for hostages. And the victims believe that they still had rights, the right to life, even in the midst of a terrorist attack. And they got support for their side um, after a long slog through many Russian courts. Um, it was estimated in 2012 that Beslan victims had been involved in 127 judicial proceedings involving 50 Russian judges all the way through the Russian Supreme Court and Russian Constitutional Court, and finally landing in Strasbourg um, at the European Court of Human Rights, where this photo was taken. Uh, 447 former hostages and next of kin brought complaints. And finally, in the year 2017, can you imagine, um, 13 years after the hostage taking, the European Court validated their claim that governments have a positive obligation to prevent threats to life before, during, and after a hostage taking. So the victims won. Um, and by September 2019, the Russian government had paid. Um, and those who know this court case call it a landmark case for prioritizing human rights and states' obligations to victims, even in the context of a national security threat, national security interests, and counterterrorism operations. Rescuing hostages and protecting innocent human lives should take priority over killing terrorists. Um, so that's the case study, and now we can use the case study to um, address the two research questions, which I argue have generalizable findings and implications. How do we explain individual responses to violence? Why do some individuals respond with retaliatory ethnic violence? And why do some individuals respond with peaceful participation in politics? And with a, a fabulous um, team of, uh, of collaborators in Russia, I conducted a survey of Beslan victims we defined a victim as a surviving adult hostage, a parent or guardian of an underage hostage, um, or a next of kin of a deceased hostage. And our definition omits children, um, even teenagers under the age of 18, because we had ethical concerns about their mental well-being. The definition also omits uh, relatives and friends, um, anybody beyond parents and next of kin, because we wanted to be confident that everyone in our study was truly a victim. And when you start expanding the definition, you risk this problem of miscategorization, like you're just you're calling someone a victim who themselves doesn't feel as if they are a victim. Um, we then compiled a list of everyone in Beslan who fit our definition of a victim, which was a bit of an exercise um, since the number of people held hostage in the school is still a matter of debate, even today. Um, but we ultimately identified 1,226 hostages and then one respondent for each hostage or two in the case of parents of underage hostages. And that left us with a target population of 1,340 victims. So that's our denominator, 1,340 is who we were searching for. And what's especially unique about this approach and represents um, a contribution over existing studies responses to violence is that we targeted each and every one of those 1,340 victims. There was no sampling, um, so we don't need to worry about sampling bias, which is a, a typical problem in social science research. Um, and we made every effort possible to talk to everyone. And in the end, we interviewed 1,098 Beslan victims. So these people represent 82% of the victims. In other words, we tried to get everyone and we largely succeeded. The refusal rate, as you can see, is pretty low. It's about 15, uh, 14%. 
Um, and the main reason for refusal was that the victim didn't want to recall a painful event. You know, can you really blame them, right? Um, the person just wanted to forget and move on, which is understandable. Um, in the Q&A, of course, if, if you find that troubling, we can puzzle through whether these refusals represent a limitation because they influence the findings in some way, but, um, but this was um, sort of the best that we could do. Um, we also conducted um, focus groups um, because we wanted some free-flowing conversation and group interaction in order to get a more, um, more detailed information, more unprompted perspectives than we might potentially um, get, or maybe we'd miss uh, by asking only closed-ended standardized survey questions. We had six focus groups with six to nine participants in each for a total of 49 participants, and we separated by sex and age and levels of activism, which helped maximize the openness of discussion. Um, but getting back to the survey data, um, in terms of measurement, I already mentioned that we asked about 31 different political activities. Another strength of the study, I hope, is that we followed the recommendations of Henry Brady um, and we, these activities were very concrete events that made questions less subject to recall bias. So wherever possible, we included the date, the exact location, the political officials who attended, and other details, rather than the more generic and error-prone questions that you'll see in a lot of social science, which like, did you ever attend a protest? And you're like, I think I did, or, you know, like, it's just, um, it's not as easy as if somebody said in, you know, on January when this other political official was there, did you attend that protest? Uh, those tend to get more valid responses. Social desirability bias was not as big of a concern for us because based on some of the focus groups and just general knowledge of the region, the socially desirable response in Beslan is not especially clear. Um, there's no premium placed on participation. Um, and there's also um, no scorn or ridicule. Um, so we ended up using a count variable ranging from zero to 31 possible activities. And then for studying retaliatory violence, there were some greater challenges. Um, a direct question about violent behavior is very sensitive and probably would encourage social desirability bias. Respondents might lie about violent behavior, especially because violence is unlawful. So we have guaranteed measurement error. Um, and instead, I substituted a question about support for violence. There are, of course, limitations to that approach. Um, support for violence is not the same thing as actual violence. And still, this may be the best that we can do here. And, and there's a lot to be learned from support for violence. So the supporters of violence are more likely perpetrators of violence than opponents of violence. And supporters of violence are the very individuals responsible for uh, perpetuating community norms in favor of violence and facilitating violence whenever those political entrepreneurs come along and try to rouse the community. Moreover, in Russia, we have little concern about social desirability bias when asking about support for violence against English or Chechens. So the support for retaliatory violence has actually been accepted conversation in Russia. Um, Putin has certainly endorsed violence and even supposedly progressive members of Russia's middle class and intelligentsia have advocated killing Chechens. Um, so you can't say, I've killed a Chechen, um, but you can say, I'd like to kill a Chechen. Unfortunately, I mean, it's, you know, that, that, um, that has been part of political discourse. And so the question used was exactly that one. I will now read some specific strategies that some people recommend to resolve problems in the North Ossetia. For each one, please tell me whether you fully approve, somewhat approve, somewhat disapprove, or completely disapprove. And one of the choices was kill the same number of Chechens as were killed in Beslan. 
And we enumerated with the same number of Chechens as were killed in Beslan because that phrasing is consistent with the logic of vendetta or the logic of tit for tat or an eye for an eye justice. If we had just asked about killing a single Chechen, people might not approve because they were anti-violence or they might not approve because they were pro-violence and just saw a lack of equivalency. Um, another challenge to our measurement is the use of this single question. And I certainly consider it a battery of questions, but there are ethical and methodological reasons for sticking with just the one question. So ethically, survey research isn't supposed to put evil ideas in the heads of your respondents and asking multiple questions uh, about ways to kill ethnic rivals, just, you know, it seems to cross the line. Um, and in terms of methodology, we really are interested just in this single question of murder as retaliation for murder. So given people's readiness to deprive Chechens of rights, um, any questions with tamer forms of violence would likely generate measurement error in that far more people would answer affirmatively, um, not allowing us to distinguish the truly violent from others. Um, in terms of retaliatory murder or you know, in this eye for an eye fashion, about 6% of victims fully approved and 8% somewhat approved. And those numbers seem consistent with low level of reported retaliatory violence, but high enough to merit concern, right? I mean, like that's it's still, that's, uh, still um, alarming um, and, and high enough to merit analysis. It means that one in every seven victims supported retaliatory murder of ethnic rivals. Um, I'm gonna spend the rest of the talk sharing the findings um, summarizing part two of the book, Why Politics and Nonviolence. In the second part of the book, each chapter focuses on a different explanatory variable or set of explanatory variables and probes whether those variables help explain a victim's participation in politics or support for retaliatory violence. And part two um, culminates with multivariate analysis, multivariate statistical analysis that looks like this with negative binomial estimates of political participation and ordered logic estimates of support for retaliatory violence. And I also explore the magnitude of the effects, the substantive meaningfulness of the statistical relationships using predicted probabilities. For those of you who are so inclined, that's the book. Um, but for the talk, uh, I, I won't do it. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> but I thought, you know, I thought it would just be more interesting to just like share the findings in plain English. Um, so chapter five has to do with the relationship between emotions and violence, and especially anger and retaliatory ethnic violence. So we measure anger by starting with some standard psychology questions that are used to measure depression. So psychologists commonly ask, how many days in the last seven have you felt sad? Uh, like how many days in the last seven have you felt like you can't get out of bed? How many days in the last seven have you felt lonely? So on. And we followed the lead of George Marcus and his colleagues. And instead we, of the depression markers, we inserted markers of anger. Like how often have you felt angry, hatred, resentful, um, each with scales ranging from zero to seven. And we then created a mean index of these three anger variables. And the familiar narrative of course, is that anger fuels retaliatory violence. If a member of one ethnic group commits violence against members of another ethnic group, that action leads to anger, which supposedly leads to violent retaliation against members of the perpetrator's ethnic group. So if we want to end the cycle of violence, people shouldn't get angry. Um, you know, emotions are bad. Anger and hatred are undesirable and maybe even dangerous characteristics. Um, you know, we talk about things like the angry mob and ethnic hatred and act of hatred and so on. 
What the Beslan research shows is that there are a lot of leaps in logic that are not supported by evidence. Prior research on emotions and violence is <clears throat> on artificial settings, experiments co conducted in laboratories is how most of that work is done. The researcher supposedly induces an emotion like anger, and then the subjects, usually college kids, um, answer questions about violence. Um, and then, I don't know, I guess they leave the, lab the laboratory and they go to lunch <laughs> or they like go be on the college degree like it's just a very artificial thing in my mind to do um i certainly think that there's a strong place in social science for lab experiments but if we're talking seriously about studying the role of emotions in political life the role of anger then i think we need to be talking about anger in real life situations where people are truly filled with emotion and where we truly worry about a potentially violent response we are we should study a place where violence really happens or really could happen, violence in context. Um, and when we do study a place where violence really could happen, it turns out that anger and even hatred surprisingly have no bearing on support for retaliatory violence. And because this is uh, such a novel finding and contrary to conventional wisdom, we tested and retested and manipulated the model in many ways looking for anger to be statistically significant. You know, for example, maybe anger is conditional on other variables. And no matter what, anger and hatred just never seem to be related to support for violence. And the more I pondered this finding, the more it makes sense to me, because in common discourse, we conflate anger and violence. We make assumptions like, if you're so angry, why don't you do something about it? As if violence is the logical conclusion of anger, as if violence is within all of us, and we just need to be pushed to some breaking point. Um, and it doesn't seem to be the case. Where anger and hatred really matter is for peaceful activism. Um, angrier victims, especially those filled with hate, are more likely to be politically active. And there too, as I've pondered the finding uh, and tried to apply it to other settings, it makes sense to me, especially because, especially in its inverse, thinking about the lack of anger. Because I would argue that one of the challenges for sustained activism everywhere is in sustaining anger. I don't know how many of you have experience with like local activism, but like keeping people fired up is, is hard to do. People move on with their lives. Anger dissipates, and then so does political engagement, especially aggressive challenges to the state. And so the research kind of provides a vindication or a rehabilitation of the emotion of anger and even hatred and its value in political life. If you've been victimized, it might even be good and healthy to be angry. So if anger doesn't make people more inclined to commit retaliatory violence, uh, retaliatory ethnic violence, what does? Chapter six shows that basic prejudice plays a role. So borrowing from the American General Social Survey, we measured prejudice in very basic ways. How strongly would you object if a family wanted to bring an English home for dinner? How would it make you feel if a close relative of yours was planning to marry an English? Do you think Ossetian and English students should go to the same schools or separate schools? Um, and versions of these questions have been used for decades to measure racial or ethnic attitudes. We just substituted um, Ossetians and English for whites and blacks in an American context. And the best law victim data show that individuals who prefer not to mingle with people of another ethnicity, even in ordinary affairs, like sitting down to dinner together or letting the kids go to school together, are more likely to be violent. And this finding is this finding is independent of emotions. It's independent of anger or hatred. 
it's the very neutral matter of fact, no, I wouldn't want my daughter to marry one of those. That has a robust connection with, I'd support killing one of those. Um, so prejudice is one of the most robust correlates of support for retaliatory violence in the Beslan victim data set. And it may seem obvious to say that people who score high on prejudice, disliking English and Chechens based on ethnicity, that they would be more willing to kill them in retaliation. But actually this finding is not commonly discussed unless it's in connection with anger. But the finding here suggests that prejudice, like just an aversion to people based on their ethnicity alone, independent of anger, is problematic. And so a moral of the story that, that I, again, think is generalizable is that the non-prejudiced individuals don't instinctively seek out proxies based on someone's skin color or heritage or religion. You know, I can't find the killer, so I'll just go get someone who looks like him or talks like him or prays like him. That's not a part of the thought process for a non-prejudiced person, even one victimized, even one emotional. But prejudiced individuals more readily make the perpetrator's ethnicity the relevant factor, and they attribute the crime to that ethnic group. So in Beslan, most vicious, uh, the most vicious terrorists were known criminals before the hostage taking. Many were on the wanted list for murder and for rape, uh, robbery, other crimes. These guys were outlaws. They were sociopaths, some of them. Um, and the idea that the co-ethnics of sociopaths should be legitimate substitute targets for retaliation is facilitated by prejudice by dehumanization. Um, so one other message of the research could be that prejudice reduction, eliminating the dehumanization is important for ending cycles of violence. And I'll go through the other findings um, more quickly. Um, I'll omit for now, you know, I'll, I'll omit the discussion of methods and and just run through the, the final findings of the book. Um, attitudes toward the state here, toward Russia and Russian citizenship also matter for individual responses to violence. Political alienation, or its flip side, political pride, turns out to be the main variable connecting the two potential outcomes, support for retaliatory violence and political participation. So pride in country, under many circumstances, sounds desirable. Uh, maybe it even sounds comforting, especially after an act of terrorism. But if <clears throat> actions were partly responsible for the trauma, then continued pride in country requires a pretty generous interpretation of government actions. Um, you know, you're excusing blunders, you're excusing mistreatment, and you're instead buying blindly into the government narrative, a narrative that's usually self-serving in casting blame away from government officials and exclusively onto the terrorists. So even if the government doesn't explicitly encourage retaliatory ethnic violence, victims who are most proud of their country might infer the need for retaliation or perhaps for the green lighting of violence, that they have a license to kill. So the way I might say this is pride in unaccountable governments can be harmful, right? And I'm sure we can think of many, you know, pride in unaccountable governments is a harmful thing. Like that may resonate with those of us who are Americans too. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just, we can all think of some generalizations about that. Um, political alienation like anger might seem like an unappealing characteristic but in the context of the aftermath of violence where the government mishandled the hostage crisis, perhaps political alienation is inappropriate and even a healthy sentiment. Um, politically alienated Beslan victims were unlikely to approve of killing Chechens and they were more likely to be political, political activists. 
So political alienation served to push them to demand greater accountability and responsiveness from their government. We don't need to worry about them. We need to worry about blind political pride. Um, the social dimensions of uh, life after the hostage taking were among the topics that the focus group participants themselves found most engaging. This is what they want to talk about. Um, and the book looks at the victims' perspectives on Russian society and the interest of ordinary Russians in the plight of Beslan victims. Um, and there was uh, some evidence that socially alienated victims were more supportive of retaliatory violence than other victims, but the relationship was weak, which is actually consistent with the literature that's a bit all over the place in suggesting that socially alienated individuals might be more predisposed to violence, less predisposed to violence, equally predisposed to violence. Um, it, it's just not a very, um, it's not a literature that has very clear uh, guidance. Um, and social alienation played no role in political participation. I report the results um, anyway, because I'm very sensitive to publication bias against null results. Um, in fact, sometimes the null findings, I think, can be pretty illuminating. In Beslan, there are very strong social networks, but there are also a lot of hard feelings. Um, the community is filled with hard feelings between people who lost kids versus people with living kids who are injured, uh, activists versus non-activists. There are disputes and hard feelings uh, within the activist community itself. And these sometimes contradictory forces push victims toward action and push victims away from action. So even though it's hard to hear, have like one clear finding to share, it's still, like I said, it was a very um, important conversation for the victims themselves to, to, to grapple with. The findings about efficacy um, uh, for political participation, are those are unsurprising, consistent with voluminous research, high political efficacy is related to political participation. Um, Self-efficacy is the more normatively complicated variable. So feeling in control and able to solve problems after the hostage taking sounds like a healthy attribute. And indeed, such victims tend to participate in politics at high, uh, higher rates than victims with low self-efficacy. But object objectively speaking, it's pretty hard to feel in control during or after a hostage taking. So by definition, victims were not in control. They did not have efficacy. And interestingly, those victims who did express uh, high self-efficacy were more likely to retaliatory violence, to believe that they could exercise control in that way by killing Chechens. So the generalizability here might be to question whether it's always a good thing to imagine that you can do something about an awful situation. It might depend on what we mean by do something. Um, and there are other findings too, um, but instead of um, enumerating those, I'll just offer some last thoughts on generalizability. Um, although I think many of the findings are generalizable to victims of violence in other places and times, there's greater uncertainty about whether the findings apply outside the victim context. What about people who were not victimized, but they feel aggrieved anyway? What explains their decision to retaliatory <clears throat> violence or participate in politics? And this is the question about allies. Um, activists often refer to, to people this way as allies. It's the question of whether men are mobilized on behalf of women's rights for the same issues that women are mobilized, or what makes native-born citizens mobilized to defend the rights of immigrant populations. And to address this question, we supplemented the Beslan Victim Survey, two citywide random sample non-victim surveys, one in Beslan, itself, and then one in the North Ossetian capital of Vladikavkaz. We had over a thousand respondents in each city. And most residents of these cities 
knew some of the victims, or maybe they were just devastated by having such an atrocity committed in their backyards. But they weren't former hostages. They weren't parents of underage hostages. They weren't next of kin of deceased hostages. And this is another chapter with non-findings, where again, I argue that it's important to say, we don't know. So models of victim behavior do not transfer well to non it's still the case that some of the findings work, like anger is unimportant for retaliatory violence, where prejudice is important. Um, but otherwise, we don't really understand ally behavior. And so this is a really fruitful line of inquiry for the proverbial future research, because many people would really like to understand how to mobilize sympathetic people who are not directly in a victim community. Um, and also methodologically, the fact that victims and non-victims might be differently motivated suggests that we should be more cautious about using population samples in the study of violence and political participation, because these undifferentiated samples might obscure the different motivations of each group. But getting back to victims, um, I begin and end the book by expressing gratitude toward them and admiration. And I hope to do that in all my talks about the book. Um, if you didn't know anything about the hostage for this talk or about ethnic conflict in North Ossetia, or uh, for some people like, oh yeah, I once knew something, I was watching the news at the time, but then I kind of forgot about it. That's a luxury, that's a debt that we owe to these brave victims. The hostage taking was a classic precipitant. That's what the literature on ethnic conflict um, calls it, a highly inciting act. And the victims could have taken the bait. Um, so they could have returned murder with murder, as was expected of them. And we all know horrible, tragic details about this region, even more tragic than the details of the deaths at the school. And instead, they did this. Um, so I continue to feel humbled in telling their story, and, and I, I hope I've done it justice. So I'll leave it there. Thank you.